You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. This week, I'd like to start by talking about innovation districts which are essentially geographies of innovation that are primarily located in cities and urban areas that leverage the research strengths of R&D-rich universities and medical institutions, along with companies, startups, and suites of intermediaries, such as accelerators and incubators. That's uh, one of the topics I think will be very interesting for us to discuss today as we launch into our um, special guest. Hi, Martin. Hey there, Carl. That's a really good place to start for this week's conversation in that, uh, yeah, it's a big focus of the conversation that I had with Colin Sterling as the VC of Flinders University and one of a number of um, really challenging dilemmas the sector's facing at the the moment. How does it think about its geography? How does it think about what it does? How does it think about whether it does it alone or joins with others in doing it? And, And how much in doing that is it daring to be different from what others do and from its own past or or true to its tradition and its legacy there's um some big questions for the sector in in all of those different areas that it's facing right now there's big questions in uh, general corporations when they look at these incubators or these innovation districts around who they want as partners in those environments and who makes those decisions so it's almost a, a competitive play in some contexts well and i think the the nature of partners and and residents in districts have have changed you know they are subject to change as economies change i mean we're we're, we're being joined by colin from from adelaide um and that used to be the seat of, of our, much of our car manufacturing industry in, in Australia, which stopped operating in, in South Australia some little while ago. And along with many Australian states, the South Australian state government and, and its major institutions have been looking to grow new industries since that time and, um, and are really looking at bringing new partners into to the, their districts and their economies to make those new industries flourish. And we do hear about the one in South Australia going particularly well. I mean, it's only been a decade really that this concept's taken off, and you know, the output from those those collectives are now becoming to be substantial. I'd be interested to hear. Uh, you know, I'm interested to hear what Colin has to say about this and their involvement and what he sees the trajectory to be. Yeah, well, as, as he explains, it's something that he inherited. It was um, decisions made before he arrived in South Australia that took effect almost at the time that he did but um, partnerships like that and initiatives like that also have a life of their own and and develop in different ways and he's just been exposed to a major change in government in in the South Australian Premier's election um, with the new dynamic that that brings of of how leaders at times from time to time in our different parts of the world see the way that that the local economy and the local institutions should play out there's been calls for mergers of the south australian universities again as a result of the most recent premier's election we we haven't seen many major mergers of australian universities up until now we've had lots of talk about it being a possibility and whether that plays out first or or ever in south australia or western australia or or anywhere else in in our nation will be really interesting to see as we we go through this very interesting time following up from the pandemic. That dynamic in itself, you know, with politicians making decisions on behalf of 
institutions or um, universities in this instance. Traditionally, has that been something that's been listened to and acted upon? If politicians are saying, you know, we need to merge universities or we're going to do this and that. In in banking circles, for instance, you know, uh, certain parties within the bank would uh, go to battle if they didn't agree with it. And you'd go through a process of negotiation for want of better description and you'd come out with an agreed way forward. And sometimes it, there'd be no way forward or otherwise, you know, there's some sort of a, a limited agreement and um, and that's the answer. What's tr- traditionally what happens here? Well, I think you're asking a question there that's really at the heart of why leadership in universities and why the development of universities why the leadership is so difficult and why their development has been un, so unusual in that, you know, much of our commentary about them talks about them being like corporate entities, which in many ways they are, but in lots of ways they're not. And we also talk about them as if their leadership was just like it would be in a corporate environment of clear authority of the CEO and, um, you know, major commitment to shareholders and, and staff and, and an employed workforce that um, is required to and committed to go forward with that. The reality is quite different. They're, they're increasingly being expected to be corporates, but they have a level of regulation and a level, and a, and a level of context that makes it very different difficult for them to be fully corporate and for many that have worked in our universities they'll be only too too familiar with the the principles of collegiality and um, academic freedom and the democracy that exists in academic environments is such that without taking everybody in the in the community of the scholar, the, the scholarly community with you, you really can't make major change in the same way that you would in a corporate environment. So we're expecting our universities to be businesses and their regulation and their culture is far from it in many cases. Mm. Oh, it's, it's fascinating for uh, someone who loves to get into the nitty gritty and the challenge of working with people, groups, teams and culture. Um, you know, those restrictions of which you just noted uh, would make it very difficult to um, to witness some sort of a culture, culture transformation, let alone any sort of shifting and shaping over time. Well, it's also, it, it, it makes it very problematic for that. It also is, to a significant extent, an explanation, and Colin says this in the interview, an explanation as to why they aren't more different from each other. We we have commented on many previous episodes of Headaches of the calls for more differentiation, the standing apart from the pack, um, you know, the, the, the following a differentiated strategy from competitors. And in many cases, what we get left with because of these inhibitors to differentiation is a quite congested middle order of our universities um, that where, by virtue of history, some of the leading players are, are, might have been steps ahead Everyone else might be jockeying to to either catch them up or be closely behind them, but it's a very congested middle order where it's difficult to get noticed. And that's a really good theme for one of the quotes that Colin used in my interview with him earlier this week. And we'll hear from Colin just after this short message from our sponsor. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. 
Our guest today on HEDEX is Professor Colin Sterling, who has led Flinders University in Adelaide as its Vice-Chancellor since 2015. And he took on that role after four years as the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Curtin University in WA. He's been a professor, a dean and then vice president at the University of Manchester in the UK after holding a research fellowship at UC Berkeley in the US. And that all followed his initial education in his home of Scotland. Colin, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you, Martin. Nice to be here. And Colin, from that introduction, you've you've been working in universities in various parts of the world, and you're finding yourself in Adelaide and Australia at a very interesting time in our world's history. What what is the world looking like for you and for Flinders from Adelaide right now? Oh, um, well, you're quite you're quite right. It's been a a difficult um, and you know unexpected um, couple of years. Uh, the pandemic's obviously been something that you know everyone out you know the sector, but everyone outside of the sector, the entire community has been um, struggling with. I have to say though, um, that Adelaide's um, Adelaide's been a great place to live. It's also been a pretty good place to be getting through the pandemic. We've been much more fortunate, relatively speaking, um, than many other um, jurisdictions. Uh, but that said, you know, the inability to travel has changed the job somewhat. Um, it's certainly been um, an issue, as you can tell from my accent, I'm, uh, you know, from Scotland originally, as you said, and, you know, not being able to, to travel to see family um, back in, in the UK has been pretty difficult. And I'm really looking forward to uh, the opportunity to be able to do that sometime soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. And I'm sure there's many people um, would echo your thoughts about the challenge of times and, and what we're all looking forward to. And um, some of the things that I imagine Flinders is looking forward to and you as its leader would, would be picking up on the, the rebranding of the university that was was undertaken under under your leadership. And you rebranded to present yourself to your markets and your external community with a with a call to be fearless. So um, I'll gloss over the obvious Braveheart connections there, Colin, and um, and ask you to, to say a little bit more seriously about what does that positioning entail for your university? And why is that the phrase that you've settled on for the way you want Flinders to be perceived and yet that you look for your university community to behave in the period ahead? So we did, Martin, a lot of consultation around this, you know, because... You know, we could have just come up with a slogan that, you know, was what we thought we should try to be. But what we did was to talk to our staff, talk to stakeholders and especially to students to ask them, you know, really who they thought we were and, you know, what they thought we should seek to be more of uh, into the future. And it was really interesting that coming through the consultation process, um, I think you know was you know, was really the zeitgeist of the uncertain uh, and anxious times that we live in. We've got perhaps a lot, I think, for young people to be anxious about. Um, you know, there's the the obvious pandemic, of course, but also the future of work. You know, we keep hearing that the future of work is going to be transformed, and that the that the jobs of the future, the careers of the future will look nothing like the careers of, of the past and, in fact, maybe have a half-life of only a few years and so on and so forth. And, of course, you've then also got the big one, which is climate change. And as we worked through it, um, what 
really resonated with the community actually was the idea uh, of being prepared to face those challenges. And, you know, not simply in the sense of, you know, being brave or courageous and, and you know, front, you know, shirt fronting, standing up to them, rather the process of becoming prepared um, for that, you know, the unknown future that, that we're facing to become equipped to become fearless. And that, it really struck a chord with our students. Uh, I think it also describes, frankly, what our researchers do every day. Uh, and I think it also matches what is our fearless uh, ambition as an institution. And, you know, interestingly, it also, I think, you know, that, that ambition, you know, that it, 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 it gels with the words of our namesake, Matthew Flinders. He once said that he had far too much ambition to rest in the unnoticed middle order of humankind. Uh, and that's an ambition that, you know, we are seeking to, to replicate. And fearless somehow just captures that and resonates really strongly with the, with the university community. Unnoticed middle order. I'd never heard that expression before. And it sort of um, makes me think about the landscape of Australian universities and the way that they're jockeying in, in rankings in, in many ways in a quite an interesting way. And, and I guess the, the culture that plays out in the way that you present your campuses, I presume, is still central to how, how Flinders is th seeing things. I, I, I know your campus from having visited your Tonsley Innovation District, which I know has been a, a big focus for investment by the university. Um, I wonder if you can tell us what Tonsley is and how important it is to Flinders' vision. Tonsley is a really interesting example, I think. The recent history, um, it was the site of, the, of a Mitsubishi car plant. Uh, so they used to build Mitsubishis there. Um, that closed in 2007 or 8, I think, uh, with the loss of a thousand jobs or more, um, and really kind of um, um, foreshadowing the end of car manufacturing here in South Australia. Um, the site was earmarked as a potential innovation district by, um, by the state government, uh, and Flinders partnered with state government, and we invested su substantially. Uh, in a significant facility there. Uh, and that was opened in 2015, just as I was arriving at Flinders and uh, took up the role. One of the first things I got to do was to open this brand new facility. Hmm. Um, and at the time there was almost nothing else um, at Tonsley. Um, but in the seven years since, uh, the place has blossomed out of all recognition. I, I looked up just um, uh, the other day the number of organizations and companies that now have uh, a presence at Tonsley, it's, uh, I think it's in the high 60s. Uh, so, and, and, I'm, and it includes companies like Siemens, like Tesla, Sage Automation, MicroX. Um, we're working there very closely with BAE Systems. Uh, so, you know, lots of significant uh, players in, in high-tech manufacturing uh, have have come to, to Tonsley. Uh, we've also got uh, you know, medical device companies. We've got, a, we've got a facility for the manufacturing of hydrogen gas. Uh, that's pumping hydrogen gas into the natural gas, local domestic natural gas supplies to supplement natural gas, to test the, 
um, the 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 um, introduction of hydrogen into that domestic um, energy chain, and we've been using it as a very important interface and and focus for our um, industry engagement and working very closely with industry at Tonsley. And one of the other major developments that we're very excited about at present is that we're just building out what we call uh, the factory of the future at Tonsley, which we're doing jointly with BAE Systems and a number of uh, other partners and some with support from uh, state government. Uh, that's a place where we're researching you know, advanced manufacturing methods. BAE Systems are keen to, to test advanced manufacturing methods that they can then use uh, and, and take straight to the shipyard to, for the construction of the, the future frigates uh, for the Australian Navy. But it's also then a place where students get an opportunity to see how these advanced manufacturing techniques will change the face of future industries. So there's a research component, there's an industry engagement component, and there's an educational component. So it's, and it's really exciting. So um, you've invested in Tonsley, and you're also investing in a new health and medical research building under construction, and a new city campus at Festival Square in the Adelaide CBD. I mean, a lot of commentators are suggesting that this would be an interesting time to be investing in infrastructure when the sector's finances have been so badly hit. And But but perhaps more importantly, with teaching now moving more to online and hybrid modes, what's the thinking and why is it right for Flinders at this moment in time to be investing so much in physical infrastructure? Well, um, the the... You know, one of those two things that you mentioned there, Martin, is, of course, that um, health and medical research facility. I mean, our health and medical research activity um, has been, um, you know, we've been well known in that area for many, many years. Um, but that activity, the scale of our activities are growing quite or is growing quite considerably, very well, very rapidly, actually. Um, and, you know, we need expansion space and, of course, modern facilities. And, you know, you, you can't do medical research, most medical research um, in your in your home office, you know. Um, some of it you can, but not very much. You've got to have some research facilities. And this building is primarily those research facilities. And it's simply an investment, an investment that we have to make um, in order to continue to expand our medical research activities. It has been an interesting time in the sector. Uh, I would say, though, that I think at Flinders we've we've been you know we've managed to navigate through the financial constraints of COVID relatively smoothly. Um, we've managed to hold up our revenues, so you know we have not had to go through any COVID-related redundancies, the sorts of things that we're seeing elsewhere around the sector. So we've managed to um, to avoid those sorts of um, of substantial financial constraints and it means that you know financially we're in um, pretty good shape and we've been engaged in long-term planning around uh, these particular facilities you know for a couple of years you know how long it takes to plan a building um, and you know while it might have been easy for us to easier you know perhaps uh, for us to pull back and ice them uh, until, you know, for a, for a period of time or so. Um, the reality is that our finances are pretty strong. Uh, the case for us, for
for our growth is very strong. If we delay them, we're simply going to slow down our future growth. Uh, and so, frankly, it's an opportunity. It's it's a it's it's an example maybe of being fearless, but by fearless being prepared, we've done the prep work, um, we've built up the strong financial base. Uh, we're able to do it. Why wouldn't we do it? So, at one level, you know, it became an actually a very easy decision to make. Um, that this is about the future growth and success of the university. Uh, and we need to just get on with things. We've got to stop wringing our hands and worrying about the pandemic and just look to the future. I wonder I wonder what you are wringing your hands and worrying about, if anything, at the moment. I mean, you've just had a state election and Labour oh. has swept into power with a landslide victory. Um, your new Premier, is he Peter Malinowskis? Is that how I pronounce Peter his name? Malinowskis, that's right. He, or he calls himself Mali. Mali. Okay. Mm. Um, I, I read that he's committed to a university merger commission. That must have made interesting um, hearing and reading to you. And he's going to make recommendations on a possible merger within the South Australia university sector. What's your, what's your view on university mergers? And how do you think Flinders is positioned to the prospect of that at the moment? I was involved in, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I was at Manchester University for many years uh, and was actually there and part of the leadership team during the the merger that created the current University of Manchester, um, merging the old Uni Manchester plus UMIS. Um, so I've been there, seen what a merger is like, you know, up close and personal, uh, and of course also seen what a success that one's been. That's probably held, held up by many to be the most successful university merger anywhere in the world. What about ASA? Well, South Australia, you know, the, it, it appears that this is some, this is an old chestnut. It comes up on a regular basis. I think it was the first question I got when I arrived here um, was what do I think about university mergers? Um, I can only really, of course, comment from a funder's perspective. Uh, and I do think, look, it's important. You never say never, right? Uh, but I do think that we need to understand what the goals of any merger would be. We also need to understand how complex and difficult a university merger is, um, what a major distraction it would be. In fact, even what a major distraction it is just talking about the possibility of one. Yes. And importantly, of course, there's absolutely no guarantee uh, that the, um, the, the, the sum of the whole will exceed the sum of the parts. So, it is a complex process and damage can be done before, during, and even after um, such a process. So we have to be confident that there's a, a real purpose to it. If you were to ask me, does Flinders University need a merger to be successful? For me, the answer is absolutely not. Um, you know, we've grown, as I mentioned, our research in these last four years very considerably, and it's growing again this year, and we have no plans for it to that growth to slow down. Um, so we're content in pursuing um, our own agenda. You know, it has been suggested, and I think a very important point, it's been suggested that various ideas are thrown into the pot by, you know, um, various people. Um, maybe we could merge all three universities, maybe blend them together, recreate two new ones. That's super complicated. Uh, it's been suggested that maybe we could, you know, stop wasting time and money by, you know, having to compete with each other all the time. And maybe, you know, 
um, carve up some disciplines between particular inst- uh, you know, to particular institutions. I mean, all of that, to me, those sorts of ideas are just deeply flawed, in my opinion, uh, because actually, who benefits from the competition? Yes, I know the universities, you know, it wouldn't it be great if, if we didn't have of competition just up the road, putting a program on that we've been doing for the last few years. But who benefits? It's the students. You know, the, the students benefit because we knock our socks off to put the most um, uh, competitive program out there, out there, the most relevant program that we can. And the competition, we do that because we've got to stay ahead of the local competition. Now, you know, if if we were to try and carve that up, such that there was less choice for students. I don't think that's to their benefit. Uh, and to be honest with you, if students don't have choice inside the state, then they'll look outside the state. And the state absolutely does not benefit from that whatsoever. You're, you're talking about um, how students will be interested and motivated by innovation there in, in, in our education models, I guess. And I mean, innovation in contemporary education, I, I, I note, is one of the things that uh, you have a strong commitment to in your public positioning. But it has a very different ring to it, surely, in 2022 that it might have had in as recently as 2019, given yeah. all we've been through in the last few years. What, what have you been through in your changes to your teaching and learning programs in, in your commitment? You, you, you mentioned your employability rates with postgraduate learning. I presume lifelong learning is looming larger on your agenda. But I also assume that your moves to hybrid modes of learning, despite your physical capital investment, were a little bit more than an instant reaction that you're now going to move away from and will have an enduring feature. What, what, what's the agenda for innovation in your education model at Flins? We could spend ages on this one, Martin. Um, I'll, try and, I'll try and condense it down. I mean, we've done a few things, for example, like I, I think we've got what I would say and what many people tell me is, for example, the most innovative law curriculum in the country. We've just launched a, a year or so ago. Um, our law, law graduates are you know, deeply immersed in technology and the use of technology and AI in, in, um, in the future of law. That's, that would be one example. Another would be um, uh, a course we've put on in advanced manufacturing that we, that we worked specifically with industry, you know, worked with industry. Industry told us precisely the issues, the skills gap that they were seeing right here, right now, and could we do anything about it? So we went off and within, within two months, we had a course launched um, that could take their staff, reskill them uh, and um, put them back in, to be more effective in the workplace. And so I think working with industry to understand precisely what they need rather than you know, the old chestnut of us trying to you know, lead a a supply-driven um, economy rather than listening to where the demand's coming from, I think is important. But you're absolutely right about COVID. COVID has changed the game entirely. Um, but I think that it's not as simple as it seems. You know, So we've seen this pivot to online, I hate to use the word pivot, but it's been a pivot that in just a few weeks, universities around the country, around the world, shifted everything online in a way that DVC's academic have been trying to achieve for 15 to 20 years, you know? So it's been amazing. 
Uh, and what I think is wonderful is we've now got all of this online um, content and activity uh, and the sky didn't fall in. You know, we've found we can, we can do it and do it relatively um, easily. Um, that's important because there are some people, you know, out there who um, want or need uh, to study from home, uh, aren't able to attend campus. Maybe they, they can't study till the kids are in bed, something like that, whatever it might be. Uh, and being able to offer those opportunities to, to those students, I think, is hugely important. Um, but equally, I find it very fascinating. So here at Flinders campus right now, you know, the place is packed. It is, you know, we're, we're you know, just teeming with students who want to be here, to study here. Uh, and I think the, the desire to be engaged in social learning activities, face-to-face -face social learning activities is clearly very, very strong. And so, you know, while I think, um, you know, th there's no question we need to be offering a very high quality digital content and experience for our students. We should have, you know, digital tools and, and you know, uh, apps and so forth uh, that make the experience seamless and, and easy for students. What I find interesting is that actually, while that brand new shiny techno area gets a lot of attention, I actually think there's a huge opportunity in us ensuring that we're adding the maximum possible value in the face-to-face -face experiences that we offer on the campus. Uh, because I think if we do that, coupled with then you know a seamless technical ex uh, digital experience, then I think we've got an unbeatable proposition. Oh, that's that's um, a, a, a passionate and a confident and dare I say fearless um, thought yeah. about um, the future of, of your education systems. I, I observe that government has been probably calling for the sector to seek to differentiate some of its offerings and to experiment with new business models a little bit more than it believes it has up until now. So there are many that have criticised our universities, despite their ubiquitous high quality, of, of, of all looking the same. So leading a university that's seeking to be fearless in that environment, is Flinders differentiated in the Australian landscape and does it seek to be? And, and, and if so, in what way? You know, I think that we've got a lot of differentiation actually taking place. At the end of the day, of course, though, um, universities, there's probably not a strategic plan in a university anywhere, probably almost in the world, that doesn't seek to do top quality research and top quality education. I mean, the, the, there's a fundamental inherent simplicity to what we're seeking to achieve, but we do it in very different ways. And I would say that, you know, you know culturally, Flinders, for me, um, we have, a, I think, a really strong and I think a very quite, quite remarkable culture. We've got a lot of students who are first in family to go to university. Um, a lot of staff here were first in family to go to university, uh, and so, including yours truly. You know, my dad left school when he was 14, um, became a postman. My mum at 16 was a telephone operator in a, in a telephone exchange. That's a job you don't hear much about these days. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think a lot, I think in our culture, we recognize, I think through our own lived experience, the staff, I mean, that transformational power of education. And I think that's where our student-centered ethos really comes from, that 
that you know we're 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 so um committed you know to being able to offer that opportunity to uh, another generation so i think that's really strong um, but also universities have and let's face it we all know it um we're long-standing institutions we've got um you know legacy issues we've got bureaucracy to, to deal with uh, and you know every now and again you've got to scrape the barnacles off um, and you know we did that five years ago we initiated a process it was a, a very it was a root and branch restructure it was a simplification it was a um, um, flattening of our structure uh, and what we've seen in the four years since has just been you know substantial performance uplift in every you know in every domain what it, it means that you know there's some truth in the fact that in the idea that we could do things more effectively, more efficiently. I mean, we we you know we can, um, and I think it's important that you know if we're to if we're to receive, you know, public funding, taxpayers' funding, because that's you know it doesn't come from the government; it comes from the taxpayers. If we're going to be funded by the taxpayer, then I think you know we're we're duty bound to spend that money as effectively, um, efficiently, wisely as we possibly can. Just moving the the interview towards a conclusion, then this is a question that I find myself asking all vice chancellors in these in these interviews. Um, are you enjoying being a vice chancellor at a leading Australian university in twenty twenty two? Twenty twenty two, you know, notwithstanding the Ukraine, um, twenty twenty two at least is a, looking like a better year than twenty one or twenty. So there's that to to reflect upon. You know, I guess like I've been in unis all my life, my professional life. And uh, I guess when I think about it, you know, why, you know, I've reflected on it from time to time. Why do I, why do I do the job? And, um, you know, as a researcher, as a, as a teacher, you know, I, I, I realized looking back that the, that what I got from that, the important value in that for me was, was really fundamentally making a difference. And that's either in research in the lab or in the classroom. Uh, and, of course, a few years later, I then moved to the dark side of university administration. And, you know, you question why does one do that? And I guess what I realized is that there was an opportunity to make a difference on a, uh, you know, at a, on a different scale. Uh, that if there are opportunities to, uh, you know, improve an environment, you know, create an environment where others can succeed to the very best of their ability then the cumulative impact of that is far greater than any one of us could ever achieve on our own. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's making a much bigger difference. And, you know, so that's where the, the fun of it comes for me. Uh, and, you know, as far I, I just, I can't describe how lucky I feel um, to be Vice Chancellor at Flinders Uni. Well, whether it's lucky or whether you've made your own luck, you've certainly um, shared with us some interesting insights into the particular features of of Flinders University today, Colin, and given us some really um, important insights into where the sector's up to and and what might lie ahead. So for that and being both a generous and fearless guest for us on HeadX, thank you very much, Colin Sterling, for joining the podcast. Thank you. You know, Martin, when when we hear from our special guests, and I know you've got a lifetime of experience with leaders in the sector, and I absolutely don't. Um, the first thing that strikes me generally is the quality of character. You know, who are these people? Are, are they going to develop um, fellowship? 
Are people going to follow them? Are they going to listen to them? Are they going to get cut through? And I like that with Colin. He was, you know, very authentic, you know, spoke very genuinely about his background, where he came from, uh, how that's well suited to his leadership in the university around first and family. He came from a very humble background himself. Uh, makes him very likable, and, and in a world right now where you know trust is is the is the major um, currency, he's going a long way down that path to establish cues of belonging, sense of belonging, sense of community, um, where I think people will listen and 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 take notice and consider and contemplate what he has to say. I think that's a good point. I mean, I in 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 many ways the last two or three years has shone a real spotlight on the leaders of our institutions in a way that I I think the unnoticed middle order about describing universities that that Colin draws a a Flinders a Matthew Flinders quote towards to a significant extent before before the last two or three years there'd be many in universities that wouldn't have noticed its leader as much as they have now but we've shone a light on our leaders over this last two or three years with they're very visible they've become very much in front of their communities the the two or three town hall meetings a year have almost become the the, the weekly written communication and the much more like a, a quarterly or a, a monthly town hall meeting. There's been a, a reaching out to try and build that sense of community, to try and forge strong personal leadership. And some have thrived in that and others have found that a real challenge. And I think Colin's very much one of the former. Mm. I was interested to hear uh, what do you have to say about the brand position or the rebrand where, uh, you know, Fearless, Fearless is where they landed. And, you know, he spoke about what that really means and what he means for the university and it has got a very strong cultural context and that is it's as much about being prepared or preparedness as fearless you know being prepared in it with courage and confidence to walk into the unknown the ambiguous and the things that are facing us whether that be changing ways of working whether it be the future of work whether that be climate change itself um, that's obviously where the thinking and the strategy came from and they've landed in a position that that sets them up to, you know, deliver on or demand that they deliver on a set of ex- expectations. Well, I, I, I found it an intriguing um, a term for for their brand and a strong association with the culture they seek to gain as well. And yeah, it's it's. I mean, I said in the introduction to this week's episode that we have these different dilemmas of what are we going to do in a in a climate of mergers, what are we going to do when the when the dynamics between teaching and research are perhaps challenged in the way that they haven't before? What are we going to do when our either choice between or our combination of commitment to the physical and the virtual um, infrastructure in a new hybrid world? I, I, I think being, you know, that being prepared for an uncertain future is key and having leaders that can create cultures that allow that uncertainty and ambiguity to be navigated is really important and um, yeah the Flinders have, have developed a very interesting position there with Colin having some some really clear insights into how those dilemmas will be will be reconciled by Flinders in the years ahead. And he spoke to not just the digital development but also the in-person physical space and the desire to to optimize their their campuses in physical elements and I can't help but think about what's happening in the corporate world at the moment that yes everyone ran to online collaboration you know zoom teams blue jeans whatever it might be but at the same time a lot of the organizations that 
um, had greater foresight were developing their environment so that when push came to shove, and reality is that we're there now, a lot of employees don't want to go back, if they have an environment that is conducive to collaboration that people want to go back to and they might need to sweeten the deal with on-site catering, um, they're much more likely to bring back people, which is critical to bring back the vitality to drive collaboration. So it's a real, it's not a nice to have, it's a performance basic. Uh, and I, I like that he said, look, it's not just about us being effective online. We need to actually focus on our in-person experience also. Yeah, well, I think there's, um, there's getting both the physical environments, the physical campus and the online um, experience both of a high standard. If universities are going to continue to operate that hybrid model, and if choices aren't going to be distinctly made between going down the route of one or another, then a leadership and a culture and a brand positioning that makes that that effective in both those environments is going to be key. I, I mean, I, I found Colin's comments around the difference between their sort of partnerships at Tonsley with all of those other corporates the, the analogy that he made or the example that he gave of medical research not being something you can do in your home office, but that the online education being something which would increasingly exploit online and digital innovation, it, sh- it showed that the, the spectrum of university activities will require a different sense of balance between that excellent, shiny physical environment and culture and a brilliant way of operating in an online world. And keeping all of that going in the breadth of university activities in the years ahead will will call for some quite diverse and sophisticated and nuanced leadership and culture within our, our organisations. Absolutely. Now, Martin, before we finish, did you want to talk a little bit about our special edition coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. I'll be off to London soon, Carl. And um, one of the things that I'll be doing while I'm there is talking to um, Judy Raper, the CEO of Teddy, which is a new um, venture in London and a collaboration between the engineering um, departments and faculties of the University of New South Wales here in here in Australia, of King's College London, um, but also one of the most innovative North American universities in Arizona State University. Th- those three universities have been collaborating from their different parts of the world for some time. And Judy Raper, who many in Australia will know as a former DVC um, at Wollongong University, has popped up again in London to lead that particularly global corporate venture or global university venture in London. So I'll be intrigued to see what the, the landscape looks from a different part of the world over there. I think we'll all find that fascinating. That's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.